Welcome back to Amala Tierra with me, Joe Yule. And after a hugely successful podcast launch party at the Cam Christoffel Farm in Ibiza and a beautiful farm-to-table dinner to celebrate our first episode for World Localization Day, we're excited to be back with you once again. And we start with a recorded conversation at Regenerate X, a one-day regenerative agriculture conference in Ibiza on a farm in the west of the island called Tierra Iris. Daniel Christian Wahl is the author of a book called Designing Regenerative Cultures, which focuses on the idea that sustainability is not enough and that what we really need are regenerative cultures. In his book, he says that these are healthier, resilient and adaptable, and they take care of the planet and of life in the most effective way to create a prosperous future for all humanity. The concept of resilience is closely related to health, since it describes the ability to recover basic vital functions and recover from any type of breakdown or temporary crisis. When we aspire to sustainability from a systemic perspective, we try to maintain the pattern that connects and strengthens the whole system. So we went to see him at Regenerate X to find out more about his ideas, but also about what the regenerative community of Mallorca is like where he lives. Daniel Christian, while human being, author of a book called Designing Regenerative Cultures, I live on Mallorca and try to do my very best to create conditions conducive to life. I mean, I'd just love to hear your thoughts really on like the state of regeneration in Mallorca because you were kind of talking about going into the history and, you know, particularly some of the ways that regeneration is kind of like a very white conversation of kind of privileged people and there's kind of not a lot of talk about, for example, in Ibiza, the way we have such a massive housing crisis going on. It's not something that's really acknowledged uh, very often, but it's a situation that's completely out of control. And I just wonder, you know, what does it look like over there from your experience of almost a decade? Well, it's the same in Mallorca. We have too many wealthy people are buying up the land at prices that the local people can't afford. And here too non-Mallorcans or non-Ibisencos talking about these islands. Like, to some extent, part of that, even if we don't buy the 10 million and up properties. So I think if we want to make sure that we don't create a lot of social dynamite that will rip us apart, we need to really think about how to, how to create housing for these increasing amount of people that are coming here and we need to have a conversation around carrying capacity for the islands like how many people can actually sensibly be here do we want them to, to, to turn into a Manhattan and build up high certainly not yeah. but but then it's a tricky one how do, how do you say how do you put a cap on it there's actually no legal format within the European Union to not like to make it illegal for foreigners to, to buy land. The, the, the um, Balearic government is actually trying to create a law, but they have to get it through in Europe first, that you have to be resident here in order to buy property. And maybe that's that's uh, at least a, a step in the right direction because it w- would mean that there's at least some sort of commitment and also tax residency. Um, that means that if these big millionaires and so on come to Mallorca or to, to Ibiza, they, the revenue of their net worth is somehow also feeding the paying for the infrastructure rather than just buying up a piece of land and, and living in their little bubble. Um, but it's a massive problem in Mallorca too. I think it's, I it's, uh, don't know how it's on Menorca, but 
I think it's increasing the Balearic Islands are becoming a very desirable place to live, despite the fact that we're pretty much ground zero for climate change. So um, <laughs> interesting people that cho choose to come here at this point in time. <laughs> but I feel like, you know, some of the speakers we've had here today have been, you know, thoroughly fascinating. But even Christian Jochnik was pointing out, you know, that he is obviously not from here, but he's one of those people that has come here as a, like a, from an investment or a business background. And he's obviously doing something that he's very passionate about and that he finds a lot of joy within creating community. And I feel, you know, community obviously is at the very heart of regeneration. But I just wonder, you know, what, what does that mean to you, that word specifically? Community can be a separating boundary and a uniting boundary. I think we need to first understand that we're all members of a community that is called life. Life is a regenerative community on planet Earth. And we need to have a mature membership in that community which understands that only by caring for the larger community, all living beings on these islands and on this planet, do we actually really long-term care for ourselves. Any other way of creating community boundary is to say us and forget about the rest and that's the danger of what the expat communities are doing um, like they're, they're those expats who try to become more local and and le lean into the local and there are those who are just they've been here for 15 20 years still don't speak a word of um, Spanish let alone Ibisenko or Mallorquin and um, that is understandably tough for the locals to, to accept. I mean, they're, they're now, because for, for them, it's not just the international foreigners, it's also the Spanish, like the, the foresters, as they're called in, in Mallorca. Yeah? And to some extent, a lot of the Mallorcans find them even harder to deal with than, than the international experts. But how do we create a community that's truly inclusive and understand that if, we, if people are taking these islands as sort of their refuge in a crazy world where they feel like maybe here life could be a little bit more normal, then they also, with that privilege of choosing a place like this, comes the responsibility of caring for a place like this. And it's not an easy one because a lot of the, the foreigners also kind of burn out on the sort of slight... I think it's probably the same as Nibit said, like Mallorca certainly is a slow trust society. Like I was sharing this yesterday, some Mallorcan friend took me aside after two years of being on Mallorca. When I first two years did a lot of public speaking and don't you see Mallorca, a sustainable island, perfect real world laboratory for bioregional change towards regeneration, blah, blah, blah. And he, he's saying like, I've been to a lot of your talks and they're wonderful, but the locals aren't going to listen to you until you've been here for 10 years. So don't like burn out in the first three or four years and then get frustrated and leave. Just learn the way of the land, be here, become more one of us. And once you've been here for 10 years, people will kind of go, okay, maybe that's not one of those people who show up with grand ideas, a bit of money in their pocket and suggest we need to change, uh, but actually live here and try to understand this culture and, and I'm still on that journey but yeah um, we really need to focus on community and that means we need to get out of our echo chambers and our bubbles um, and that's going to be a, a journey. What does the regen scene look like in Mallorca? Like I said here it's very much a lot of expats coming over and investing into the system and you know taking kind of 
ownership of the land and also custodianship so they they are you know putting something back into the earth that they've obviously clearly fallen in love with so i feel like there's a very um segregative situation going on between you know perhaps when people like have have come here to work within the regenerative agriculture scene see the locals tilling the land and they're kind of saying oh that you know it shouldn't be done like that it should be done by you know um obviously using a pesticide free um non-machine based kind of um way of of working and i feel like you know it, it, it's very interesting because obviously they've been doing it like that for hundreds you know hundreds of thousands of years no, it's their really. tradition that's that's the interesting thing is that the, what happens a lot in this conversation is that people point back at traditional farming and then they talk about traditional farming we always planted the trees four four meters apart no you started planting the trees four meters apart once the tractor was invented and you brought in mechanized agriculture it's already the industrial farming paradigm that you try to maximize on one crop even the whole storytelling of we need to plow in order to avoid that the grasses and what grows between the trees take water from the trees it's it's ludicrous it's it's actually having bare soil increases the evaporation and gives less to but farmers everywhere not just in Mallorca and Ibiza are very traditional people slow to change and the there are still some people with small family farms or kind of horticultural um kind of subsistence living that you find on both islands where a couple of 80 year old couple living in a little finca produce a huge amount of food on a quarter of an uh, of a hectare uh, and it's that kind of high-intensity, high-human-input horticulture, um, agroforestry system that, that used to be here on these islands. Not these kind of big ploughed fields with a few almonds and a few carobs. Like Mallorca often gets sold to people as the almond island. And the almonds came in after the um, French root rot killed the vines. Mallorca was always a wine island, and it's becoming a wine island again uh, but now people are against it because they say oh no no we, we are the almond island it's like so there's a there's a bit of a question when you when you say learning from traditional agriculture like how far back do you go mm-hmm. uh, and um so the, the but but that you pointed at a difficult issue there between the incoming and the local how because you don't like nobody wants to be taught you need to deal with your land differently uh, but at least in Mallorca there are local heroes of like the Mallorcans who are building the bridge who are like fifth sixth generation payeses who really have a grounding in a long agricultural history on on this island but are open to learn like Biel Torrens in Mallorca for example he he helped to set up um, slow food balear he um, worked on getting the top the corti um, pepper recognized and 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 kind of increase the production again um, so many different projects he was involved with Anna Digon in, in in kind of making the bridge so in these first regenerative agriculture um, gatherings locals would even show up um, and it's there's there's no easy answer to how we overcome this again apart from forming community and starting a dialogue um, but yeah not not every traditional farming method that people hawk back to we've always done this is actually that traditional um a lot of them are only have only come in relatively recently 
It was very interesting what someone was saying earlier about the the horses. You know, you can have horses to do the workers of the machinery, but there's actually nothing to feed them here. We have to import hay, for example. So even taking care of the horses is is very difficult on an island like this one. And Anna was saying when I spoke to her about wildfires and how we take care of the forest and, you know, clear the debris in between the forest and clean the forest with livestock to be able to obviously protect against wildfire. And I thought that was very interesting, but apparently it's almost illegal to allow, you know, livestock to kind of run wild in in the woodland, which is very interesting because obviously that's clearly what works and actually is one of the solutions to some of these crazy fires that we've seen in Mallorca and Ibiza. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the, the whole um, tradition of forest management on the islands was such that because we're also or the islands weren't that dependent on fossil fuels in the past because it was expensive, uh, the the fuel that baked the bread that Mallorcans or Ibizencos ate came from the pine trees. Um, the all the dead wood that was um, on on a tree all the way up to the green branches was just trimmed regularly and 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 so that meant that if there is a fire it goes through the forest much much more quickly because there's not so much dry wood that can burn and then then the trees can actually withstand fires much more easily so these are traditional management practices we need to get back to but um I, I feel that that conversation is actually starting now. Um, um, but you were asking about the whole regenerative... I think it's really important to not reduce the conversation about regenerative cultures or, or regenerative bioregionalism um, to just agriculture um, because it, it's all related. It's uh, Whether it's climate change, um, in general community resilience in a brittle world where global supply lines are clearly beginning to fail. Um, we, we really need to look at how do we provide basic um, needs for the resident populations locally from local resources and local production for local consumption. And, and that's a massive opportunity also to create new employment, more meaningful work. Um, but it's a journey that we're just starting. Um, um, but paying attention to regenerative water cycles like how, how do we bring back the forests that bring back the rain you you plant rain you don't pray for it uh, you you have like if once we bring back more forest cover to these islands then the rains that do fall in the mediterranean will fall on the islands again uh, and right now we we're just not understanding how vital this is actually for the future of people being able to live here on these islands and the window is closing we've got 10-15 years to to actually significantly increase the evapotranspiration produced by plant matter on these islands in order to when the Mediterranean heats up and more water vapor is in the atmosphere to actually have islands that are almost subtropical and humid rather than desertified and I think that's the, the, the unique opportunity of these islands. and uh, Part of the Spanish peninsula doesn't have that luck, and uh, it will desertify. But we, we could actually... But it, it's all of this needs to be presented as a kind of economic re-regionalization, community building, um, working on a different way of working with healthcare, working on a different way of share, sharing ownership, of investing the big money that has come into these islands into... The, the vital infrastructure so we actually have a future together on these islands. Um, 
and and yeah, it's beyond agriculture. It's, it's everything. It's all of culture. I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to create this podcast was that four percent of the food that's actually grown here is consumed here and that means that obviously 96% is coming from elsewhere and imported and I think that's obviously a challenge for all island living like worldwide but it does seem to be you know something that seems to be perhaps something we could really work on and find solutions and make real change with the way that the community is growing as Christian also mentioned earlier and I feel uh, what what do you see as the solution to that particular problem? I mean i I once asked Biel Torrens, the guy I mentioned earlier, because I thought he probably has an educated opinion on this, whether he thinks we could feed the whole of Mallorca on what is grown on Mallorca. And he said, yeah, we could. It's just not on the diet we're accustomed to. We won't have like our chia seed breakfast and all that. Maybe we can, but but it's... Like it would be a lot of potatoes um, and a lot of fresh ve- fresh vegetables, but it, that's precise. Like, it doesn't mean we need to create like a, a sort of lifeboat, close the close the borders, and 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 sort of think only about our survival. But but actually increasing the bioproductivity of these islands and um, exporting less food and valuing local food in a way that we actually pay premium for it because it and understanding that when like farmers are not producers of a commodity called food farmers are custodians of ecosystems first and foremost and if we begin to create investment structures where we pay farmers for that service first and then allow them because of that not to have to maximize the production of produce which very often goes to waste because it's too, too much of the same type to all at once and diversify then then I think we we can create vehicles where, where we can actually have and then and it's also like because you mentioned the the horse and the mule argument I mean that's possibly a little bit Luddite uh, in the sense that um, we actually have an opportunity of taking the best of appropriate technology to overcome some of these issues. For example, there's there's, there's a Mallorcan uh, farmer called Damia Bover who um, developed the first real innovation in the field of plowing since the Romans or, yeah, the, 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 the Roman form of the plow. Um, it's not a tilling the soil so you turn the soil. It's it's literally just aerating the soil by, by, by cutting it a bit like a yeoman's plow. But instead of having it pulled by a tractor which is heavy and compacts the soil in front of the plowing it's basically a a caterpillar with a hydraulic system in between that extends grabs into the floor and then the hydraulic pulls the back part of it after it and draws the the furrows and then it extends again it's a it's a genius invention who in the local innovation government offices didn't give him any funding then some german technical university thought oh there's there's something here and helped him develop the 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 technology a bit further and now nasa is working with him on looking at that propulsion technology for um, space exploration it so so sometimes we actually need to value the innovation that comes from these islands and and support these unique genius individuals that that are here and that have the potential of co-creating an example for 
not just the Western Mediterranean, but but pretty much any Mediterranean climate zone, which would include South Africa and parts of Australia and California, um, on how to bring these Mediterranean biomes into, into higher abundance productivity, not just agriculturally, but, but in, we also need to shift from a fossil fuel-based material culture to a bio-based material culture. And that means we need to look at where and when do we grow food and where and when do we grow biomaterials and where and when do we grow fuel and all of that needs a level of integration that is a bit like building an ecosystem um, so that again it's it's the beginning of a journey um, and well if we stick with the journey we might get there <laughs> thank you so much um, unfortunately this is the end of our conversation but I really appreciate your time great and maybe we'll have another one sometime with a bit more patience. (laughs) Next, and at this time of year, we all start to be a little bit more cautious about fires. Forest fires usually occur during the summer months when certain conditions favour them. The term used by firefighters to describe those ideal conditions for a wildfire is 30-30-30. That's 30 degrees of temperature, 30 kilometers per hour of wind, and 30% humidity or less. So we called Ana Digon, president of the Spanish Association of Regenerative Agriculture, to see the best way to avoid the risk of having another big fire like the ones we had in 2011 and 2012 on Ibiza. So I work with farmers across Spain and Portugal and the Balearic Islands, of course. And we basically aim for production that is more than sustainable, that is regenerating natural resources. So uh, cattle in particular is a tool that can be very damaging to the ecosystem or it can be very regenerative and useful for the ecosystem. So we aim to show farmers how to manage their cattle and how to manage their plants and their soil in such a way that we recover holistic connections that are in favor of life and that are regenerating those resources, soil, water, clean water, clean air, and producing healthy, tasty, wonderful food. And it's not about going vegan or going vegetarian, which are very valuable options for those people for whom that works. It's about understanding the whole system, the whole natural system in which herbivores are actually a key piece of that system. And they are very key and interesting because they have legs. So they walk, they eat grass and plants and turn that into amazing protein and all sorts of things, and then produce wonderful um, manure that is food for the soil again. So they're a wonderful machine of producing great food for us, for people, and also for the soil and for plants. It's about how we manage those animals, and it's about the consumer understanding and supporting the kind of management that is good for the environment and that is good for our health as well and the health of the animals. I used to live in Ibiza from 2000 to 2008. And so it's a place that's so dear to my heart and that is where my love for nature really awakened. And it's something that really runs through you, you know, when you connect with nature, with the sea, with the forest, with the animals. And Ibiza is a great place for that. So when in 2010, 
I heard about the fires, I followed that very much live because my friends there were telling us about what was going on. And it was just heartbreaking, heartbreaking, because that nature is so delicate. That ecosystem is just so fragile that to have a fire like that roaring through is just incredibly damaging. And so it was it was painful from a human point of view of knowing people living there and also from an environmental point of view of the destruction that that is. On the other hand, if we put that into a larger context um, of, of in, in time and in geology, fires are one of the tools that nature has to clean and to open up space for new things. So that's, you know, if we, if we step back from the emotional and human side and of our short lifespan, then in the bigger picture, a fire like that is actually coming to clean up something that was in a way that was necessary in some way. So it's about how we deal with that in order to fit in with our own needs as human beings with short lifespans. Interesting. I mean, no one, you know, no one really talks about that angle, really. Obviously, it's very cleansing for the land to have this regenerative destruction but also rebirth essentially of um, of the forestry and I think you know although that's very heartbreaking and um, you know not very nice to look at to, you know to begin with even now I was up at um, Black Nose Wines and you know he literally saw the embers and the trees burning right next to his front door I mean it was just so so close and obviously that's very scary for a lot of um, people that live there. But I think, as you say, in the bigger picture of things, um, it is very important also to kind of look at the more positive aspects of fire and the things that it that it can do for the land. I mean, in terms of this idea of um, you know livestock um, grazing and cleaning and clearing the forest, I mean, what preventative um, benefits are there from that? Because it's it sort of felt like it was something that was maybe um, not encouraged and actually even made almost illegal um, in some parts of Spain and the Balearic. So can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, what this really means for the earth and what this can actually do moving forward? So a fire like that in, in the bigger perspective is actually a healing process for the land. But it's not convenient for us as humans, as the people who live there, to have that happen on our doorstep. No? So if we want to prevent that kind of fire, we want that not to happen, we need to take preventive measures. And one of the best tools that there are for that is something that has traditionally, historically happened naturally and then has been managed by humans over millennia, which is using grazing animals in the forest to clear the lower forest, the bush, all the dead bits, all the bits that are falling, all the bits that are growing and occupying spaces in between the trees and making it very easy for the fire to just rush through and making it very difficult for humans to get in that space to stop that fire. So we can use those grazing animals in a managed way. It has to be well done so that it's not, again, not damaging the land and not damaging um, the plants. But animals are wonderful tools for this, in particular goats. And goats are really, I mean, cows are great, but there's not that many cows in Ibiza. Cows uh, have a bigger weight, they can squash the plants. And uh, if you have a more rustic kind of, kind of uh, breed of cow, they will do quite well on that kind of undergrowth sort of vegetation. But you need certain kinds of breeds for that, which I haven't seen on the island. Now goats, however, 
there's a lot of goats on the island. In fact, there is a problem with in certain areas with goats. And if goats could be used and herded appropriately, they could be used as a tool to clean those forests and keep them clean. And also uh, do uh, perhaps patches or let's say wide paths that are completely clear of trees and of vegetation. And those goats and sheep can be used to maintain those big, what we call in Spanish, cortafuegos. No? It's like cutting the, the, the advance of the fire with a very wide piece of land that has no vegetation. And this is one of those, those strategies. But as well as that, having those, those literally stop fire stoppers within the forest, you can use those goats to manage the vegetation appropriately, which also means that then you can walk into those forests you know people can also use those forests and walk around and enjoy them and so but this needs to be done in a well organized and managed way so that it's not damaging and i would say it needs to be compensated it's a service that that somebody who's herding goats in the forest like that is doing for society however unfortunately we have we're at the the completely um you know ridiculous situation where this kind of practice is actually made illegal. Not only is it not supported, it's actually penalized. You know, so we need to turn that around. I mean, the, the response to all of the, the challenges that we have right now often is technological. However, technology is wonderful, but it should be used appropriately. And not all responses are technological. Technology should be accompanying more natural responses. So, for example, uh, when we do managed grazing, planned grazing, which is what regenerative agriculture is about, is planning the grazing and having animals in a space for, for a specific time, say a day, two, three days in one space, and then you move them on to the next space and on to the next space. And so time is the essence. The time that animals are in a particular space having access to plants and eating them and then leaving their manure behind and stomping on the plants, which is a wonderful impact to that soil. But then you need to move them on because if they stay there, they'll be eating the regrowth of different plants. And that's probably not what you want, unless you really want to leave it bare. You know? But if you want the vegetation to come back and to be healthy and varied, you need to move on the animals. And for this, we need fencing, which up to now has involved either fixed fencing or electric fencing, which is movable. Now, there's technology now that has just begun to be used here in Spain, uh, which is amazing, which is, imagine this, virtual fencing. You can put collars on animals that will let them know where the virtual fence, which you have set on your mobile phone, is placed so that you can actually manage a forest, a mountain with different types of cattle without putting any fences into the forest, which is any physical fences, which is amazing. This, you know, is, is technology at its best where it's serving a purpose. So basically this is, they've started to experiment with this in Spain. We're working with in the association with some of the pioneering farmers that are using this. And it is especially useful in mountain and forest situations where you cannot or should not be fencing up the forest. 
So what you do is these collars, they work on just 2G, so it doesn't need a lot of coverage as well, a lot of phone cover, which is great. And and basically you on, on, on the application, you set which are the limits where you want the fence to be on a map. And then when the animals are out in the forest, they will get a sound signal that will tell them, oh, I'm coming close to that point where the fence, uh, virtual fence is. And we, I've seen animals being trained in this and how it works. And it's amazing because the animals get it really quickly and it's not at all uh, stressful or damaging to them, but they understand how it works. And so, you know, that you can use this kind of technology to do this. Imagine if Ibiza could be a pioneer in this as well, you know, in managing forests in a way that is that is totally respectful to the environment and to the animals. But at the same time, you're getting all of those benefits. And I think Ibiza would do really well to seriously consider this this kind of work as something that needs to be promoted and that needs to be compensated and that can prevent those fires that for us humans are terribly destructive but that if we don't prevent well nature's just going to go that way sooner or later it feels you know last summer that you know pretty much half of europe was on fire i mean it was quite actually frightening i think for a lot of people you know it was it wasn't just Spain, it was Greece, it was it was Italy, it was really everywhere. There was a, a real heat wave and it was just, yeah, it was really, really, I found it a little bit challenging to, to, to witness the footage that we were kind of seeing really um, in the news and, and elsewhere. And that's really when this story started to emerge for me, when I was kind of feeling, I don't know, a little bit anxious, I think about, you know, there was obviously those massive fires in Australia as well. And it, it really felt like there was just a lot of fire happening. And of course, we've talked about the positive effects of that. But I, I feel like it is, you know, still and could be quite devastating for Ibiza to catch fire somewhere, mm. you know, um, again this summer. And it, and, it, and it does feel like a very possible risk. But I have heard that, that there are a lot of donkeys on Ibiza randomly. Mm. Um, and, then, and there's a really amazing guy doing some work, uh, a shepherd. The shepherding kind of feels like a very ancient craft in lots of ways. And, you know, when you talk about shepherds, you kind of think of, I don't know, practices that were used, you know, millennia ago. But it, but it is, you know, a very incredible thing that I think that needs to be encouraged. And you were saying about the, you know, the, pen, uh, the penalizing of these um, shepherds and, um, you know, for the destruction or mess that they may cause. And even one, one guy was telling me about, you know, the animals if they die, then they get penalized for that as well, I think for the removal of the bodies. I mean, it just, you know, what can we do, do you think, to to kind of make this more feasible um, for farmers or for shepherds to, to come to the island with more animals? Because as you said, it's not just about removing the debris and eradicating the risk of fire, it's also about regenerating the land. So it's, it's a very positive thing, really, because it's doing two things at the same time. I mentioned earlier goats as a really good animal for this kind of forest management. Now donkeys, I mean, donkeys are amazing. I mean, they're even better. I've seen donkeys clear a whole valley full of, of uh, brambles. And it's like, it's amazing the work that they do. So if there's donkeys on the island that can do that kind of work, that needs to be stimulated. Thinking about how to make that real. First of all, the administrations and the people in charge, people who are managing those public lands often, as well as private owners, need to change their perspective and understand that this is important work. Now, this year, most of Spain has, is going through a, dr a drought. 
I speak to farmers all around Spain constantly, and they are really, really worried. I mean, it's a really bad situation this year. So this is going to mean that there's going to be a lot more dry matter in the forests and therefore a lot more forest risk, forest fire risk. This is a reality. We cannot hide this under the carpet. So, you know, we're probably, unfortunately, going to be seeing the effect of that this summer. So we need to basically pull our finger out and think of solutions that are not super costly, but the, what they require is planning and they require support. The money's there, it's going to come. That's one way of doing it. But for that, you need to have the local administration on board, at the very least, giving the permission and allowing these things to happen. And in a much better situation would be being the ones who are going, yeah, let's do this. And they're going to be saving so much in resources, in public resources, because fires are also a huge expense of public resources, you know, so it costs us all a lot, not just emotionally and, and you know, and, and in our hearts when we see these fires, but also it has a very real economic cost to deal with that. So it's, it's preventing so as not to have to then deal with the problem and the cost when they come. And part of that prevention, you know, the, this kind of idea, it's basically what, it's what used to be done. So let's just recover that, give people employment opportunities, give people reasons to live in the countryside and to create community, to bring funds in and, you know, and to, and to be an example. And if you link that up, for example, with the University of the Balearics or with research institutions, then you've got a series of partners who can then also do a follow up of what's going on, extract data, show results publish things, you know, then you've kind of got a really nice package there and that, that, is, that is very inspiring to other regions as well. But of course, you need people who are very dedicated and who are very committed within the administrations and outside of the administrations. And I think that's the challenge. The challenge is human. The tools are all there. Well, I think Ibiza is very fortunate to have projects like Ibiza Produce and the local Organic Farmers Association, which I used to be part of many years ago. So I was part of a, a group who, let's say, um, revitalized that organization around about 2002. So, uh, and now the people who are there are just so wonderful and motivated and there's so much going on, you know? So really it's, it's, it's gone a long way since 20 years ago. And, and I think that the way that they're going about things are, is great. So. What is needed is more support to those things and more people joining in. And also Ibiza is by its nature, no, it's a place uh, where people come and go. So, so it's very transient and it's very difficult to get people committed to projects. Yeah. And uh, so it's great that there's people who are committed. And I think there's a lot to be said there for inspiring visitors to fall in love with nature and to see how they can personally have an impact, a positive impact. And so it's, it's the work, you know, to promote the work of the local groups and of the local farmers, I think is a great thing to invest in and to give support to those local groups from the local administrations in a way that facilitates their work. 
Our next guest today is Jason Watson-Todd, co-founder of TerraVita, a creative design studio focusing on landscapes, interior design and architecture, which is what brings us to today's spot here in San Lorenzo to take a tour of Ibiza's very first zero-carbon house, Cantanka. Jason, welcome back to the Amala Tierra podcast. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be back with you. So, you know, it's great to have you with us again and to be talking about your other passion, which, as well as growing things and nurturing them, I gather that you also love architecture. So what is it that you love about the housing on Ibiza specifically? Well, in relation to the Ibithenkan architecture, I, I love its simplicity and its kind of the way it works, kind of like cubes in different volumes. I think it's really beautiful. And obviously all houses on Ibiza uh, have always been white and there is a a certain magic to seeing uh, the hillside dotted with all these little white houses. In relation to Ibiza's architecture, if we're going back in history, just the simplicity of it, they would be they would uh, use uh, lime renders, they would use natural stone, they would use stone, make the actual st- the walls out of stone, they would use wood, it would all be natural materials. And they were very well insulated so in the summer times it would be you know very very cool when you'd go into the old homes i think that's kind of why the white isle got named the white isle right from the whitewashed walls exactly the the the, the la isla blanca the white island comes from ibiza's white homes in that sense that's kind of the distinctive mark of of Ibiza. So what is it you know you perhaps see with you know obviously there's many benefits of the old Finca style building but what is it you know perhaps that are the flaws of the of the style of housing that we see here? Well the modern style of housing that we see here the flaws are basically they're just they're not energy efficient and they're not very environmentally friendly and that's where I've been focusing on is trying to uh, design and build energy efficient homes environmentally friendly homes that kind of have that fusion with with nature where there's that balance between the modern world and the natural organic world what sort of drove that desire initially was there something that maybe you observed or witnessed in you know in the past that kind of made you feel like it was that moment in time that we really need to start changing the way that we live and the the, the desire just arose from having a, a deep respect for nature and and wanting to do things as as best as possible and from that it kind of it just it, it all spiraled spiraled out into designing kind of healthy uh, healthy homes so when you know when did you first become interested in um, designing buildings is that something that's always been there on the back burner aside from the kind of landscaping and the gardening or was it something that you know has always been maybe something that you always wish to bring to the fore of your work well i've always been a very creative soul so i think that's kind of been the foundation of of who i am and in relation to houses i think that arose around probably 10 years ago or so kind of this passion to to build beautiful homes. So here at Cantanka, and obviously, you know, you've been living here for about seven years now, but what was it like when you discovered this piece of land? When I discovered this piece of land, it was uh, abandoned farming land. I think it had been abandoned for around half a century, 50, 60 years. So what had happened over time is the pine trees started kind of eating back into the old farmland. There were there's, there were some old terraces, fig trees, almond trees, a couple of olive trees dotted around, 
but like I said, there were there were certain areas of the farm that where the where the pine trees had kind of encroached back back onto the land. So I removed them and started fixing the old stone walls, pruning the trees, and kind of bringing it back into that kind of authentic farm feel. That's very interesting you bring that up because I think, you know, in episode one, that's what Vicente Palamet was referring to, this idea that, you know, a lot of the farms were abandoned sort of 50, 60, even 70 years ago when tourism started to arrive and, you know, the forest just basically kind of comes and takes over. Exactly. I think when, when there was that kind of, well, when, when, when there was that kind of that big change uh, where suddenly the tourism came in and, and all, I mean, a big, big portion of the island suddenly got abandoned. And uh, within, I mean, pine trees, within 10 years, they can encroach on the land really quickly. And if you'd look at the photos of, there are some aerial view photos, I think of 1956, that Americans took. Most of the island was just covered in terracing. It's actually quite interesting to look at those photos. And even when you see all these, these, um, green forests within those green forests they used to be it used to be terraced farmed and if you go through if you kind of walk through it you'd be surprised to to see the little treasures that are there it's kind of like it's like archaeology you kind of sifting through the the, the sands of time is that what the terracing's for then to kind of differentiate between the pieces of land and to stop the the pine spreading now the terracing was basically purely to do with with farming and kind of controlling the when it would rain to to, to steer the re- the the water into certain areas into certain terraces and it was mainly for dry crops for almond trees fig trees carob trees also wheat and things like that and they would farm in the most unusual places on the you know on the edge of a cliff you may find an old stone wall so very very interesting how they how how they managed to survive over thousands and thousands of years on this island and then suddenly there was that enormous change it was like you know the the, the, the clash of two worlds the old and the new and the new took over obviously and and the old kind of got got hidden but it's still there and if you if you have the the energy or the courage to kind of get lost in the forest you'll you'll be surprised you may find some old farmhouses or or like i said old terraces or old spring wells and things like that really really interesting So, I mean, you're hearing now the rustling of the fig trees. We are sitting actually right underneath one, surrounded by these beautiful old stone dry walls that you refer to. Was that the first thing that you restored when you arrived here? It was one of the first things that I started restoring exactly, is, is fixing the old stone walls. And I also put in some new ones um, because that's the kind of the foundation for the, for the farm, for the landscape in that sense. Can you tell us like how one, you know, what's so significant about these dry stone walls? Because you see them, as you just said, all around the island and they're all, you know, something that you really associate specifically with the Balearics. Well, the good question. I mean, I, I, it just it basically boils down to they were very practical in the olden days. It was just purely to do with farming um, and obviously to get the right gradient of soil so there's not too much of a slope. You create your, 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 your terraced walls and that means... That the soil would be kind of horizontal, and much better for, obviously for for, for planting and 
and and working the land in that sense and and also to get the when they would start recuperating um, certain areas they would um, let's say the stones that were on the fields what would they do with those stones they, they didn't have you know didn't have trucks or machines to to get rid of them so they would end up making stone walls in, in all in all <laughs> in all areas yeah I love the fact that you know they're obviously making use of the things that they find on the land rather than just dumping it because you know building the building industry itself is like you know one of the most polluting um, in the world so I think it's you know very interesting to kind of explore this idea of you know creating more sustainable living and you know from making the stone walls you know what was it that gave you the initial idea to create um, a place like this that's zero carbon and how does that work? What what gave me the idea of creating this home was one is to be I, I love the idea of being self sufficient if if you know I have the privilege of being on, on on Ibiza being born here so I wanted to obviously make my own home and and if I was going to build it I wanted to do it as environmentally friendly as possible for me that was a very important factor and also as energy efficient as possible so the combination of those two uh, let's say the fusion of of energy efficiency because like you said earlier on that a big proportion of our uh, the problem that we have is the buildings that we've made over the last you know half a century century or even further back are not energy efficient so so it's like an enormous gas guzzling car to actually heat and cool a building if it hasn't been built correctly it's it's yeah it's a money guzzler and a lot of people don't ask themselves the question of when they buy a new home or even when they design and build a new home they don't ask themselves the question how much is this house going to cost to run but you do ask that question for example when you're when you buy a car you want to know how many uh, liters you know per per per, per x kilometers but we don't do it for houses and a lot of houses are so energy uh, energy demanding that it's just it's just bonkers mm. it's really crazy in that sense so for example this house consumes around 90% less energy than a conventional home okay you have to make that initial uh, um, effort at the beginning to, to, to do the maths to do the research to spend a little bit more money maybe you spend I don't know around 10% more or something like that but the payback is 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 pretty much immediate and then you're not stuck in this kind of this constant loop of running these homes that are just that are just burning fossil fuels in some way or another constantly this home is completely off-grid independent running off solar very energy efficient all the materials that I've chosen are very environmentally friendly even if the house gets knocked down 300 years time I've thought about that that it's easy to recycle so I've used a lot of uh, uh, wood within the structure which obviously holds co2 and in the future very easy to 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 recycle so I think the whole process of the even the how things get recycled a couple of hundred years down the road has to be thought of because in the moment that we're living in let's say in this time is it's criminal the way we the way we build and design things without forethought as to what happens to it down the road and we're just 
drowning in rubbish it's it's actually it's criminal it's crazy it's suicidal but as long as we can't see it we just kind of don't think about it but it's still there you know all the rubbish that's been produced over the last 50 years it's not gone it's uh, it's you know it's buried somewhere it'll be interesting to see in the future with the archaeologists a couple of thousand years down the road they'll probably look back at us and think we were crazy the way we we had this with our relationship to nature so i think there's got to be a big change there in, in how we see nature because before for example we build homes to keep nature out but nature's not a threat anymore it's now it's time to 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 welcome her back you know is to create this union and this fusion with her and have this deep respect for her biophilic approach which is you know that that fusion between nature and architecture and you can do wonderful things when 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 one puts their mind to it uh, human beings are very resilient creatures and we can do amazing things and uh, on the opposite end of the spectrum yeah so many so many points to unpack there but you know starting off with the fact that it's almost like a, a rebellious act to be living in a house like this that's completely off grid mm. you know you're not using the the water supply here as you said and you're not using um the electricity which in a, in a moment like we're in now because of the rise in the cost of living globally that's a you know a really amazing place to be yeah, I mean, like I said earlier on, I, 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 I do have the privilege of being on this little island that, that I have a, I have a, a, a plot of land. And um, when I built my home, I, I did build it, putting in an enormous effort into, into just doing the, the best that I can with the resources that I have. And there is a, definitely an enormous satisfaction knowing that I don't have to pay an electricity bill. Um, that the sun gives it to me for free, uh, knowing that I don't have to pay a, a water bill with rainwater harvesting, the, the water recycling in the well that that I have, kind of fusing all of those things together, then the vegetable patch, which is an enormous pleasure. Pleasure, but it does require effort. You have to go out there, you have to plant, you know, your tomatoes. You have to tend them. You, you have to put. A certain amount of effort. I think it's interesting what you mentioned at the beginning about the you know harvesting nature essentially to to power the house, which I feel you know is the future, and and that's kind of where we're we're moving towards. But you know, Spain historically actually had like a tax on the sun at some point um, in the past with solar energy, and I feel you know obviously that's changed now, but it it's kind of it's almost kind of dug its heels in and um, been one of the slowest European countries to evolve in that sense in terms of, you know, I think it was only a couple of years ago that only like 8% um, of the of the, of Spain's energy was coming from solar power, which is like nothing compared to how much harvesting of the wind that we've done here, for example, which is just utter, utter madness considering how much sunshine we have. Yeah, I think it's, uh, you use the right word there, it's madness, it's crazy, it's bonkers, it's just, it's, it's so illogical that it's actually difficult to, to grasp. What happened there was just, is greed, multinational greed, greed trying to make more money and, and they came up with this, it was, yeah, it was, it was kind of a, a tax the sun concept, impuesto um, del, del sol 
they'd called it here, it, which was basically cutting as much as possible you're using renewable energies so you're basically stuck on stuck on the the gas guzzling oil system and and uh well there was a change in government the new government came in obviously the, the new government luckily thought it was it was crazy as well and they changed the laws but that's where you see the madness of human beings and how a couple of people can make um decisions for the masses but you have to rebel i think it's it's really important you can't just sit there and moan about things and complain you have to be the change that you want to see and that's really the key is is having the courage to kind of to step into the fire and and be that change because otherwise we're not going to otherwise we're not going to make that change as i was saying earlier on that change has to come on and on an individual basis i think that's yeah very interesting to observe the way that spain has kind of changed those laws and obviously things are moving in the right direction at the moment i think there's even subsidiaries available for people who have solar powers and can then power a neighbor for example which i think is a really beautiful move in the right direction yeah i mean kind of the interconnected grid there's there's so much possibility on that sense and that is uh, it's really hopeful um, that's the advantage to technology in that sense technology is a, it's a double-edged sword it can be used for great evil and it can be used for, for great good and uh, you can you can you know by interconnecting things and if you've got excess power you can shoot it back into the grid or you you know can give that energy to a neighbor and that's beautiful of, of working together as a as a small community and then as a large community and then as an international community and and to stop arguing so much and actually get our stuff together and, and use use logic because we all you know we all yearn the same things we all we all love our friends we all love our family we all love our communities it's the same wherever you go in the world and and we all have certain human values wherever you are it's just a tap into that being human I really love what you said earlier about, you know, this idea of bringing nature into the home because I think, you know, that's how we all want to live. This idea of living in these concrete boxes um, disconnected from nature in big cities because obviously we have to uh, make use of the space is is insane. And obviously we're in a very privileged position, as you put it, of being here in a, in a wonderful plot of land surrounded by, you know, stunning nature and why would anybody want to live in a place like this without bringing that kind of sensation of, of nature into the home? It's kind of, you know, the best way to exist if that's available to you. But I think, like, by the very nature of um, describing Cantanker as a zero-carbon house, obviously that's one that doesn't emit greenhouse gases or specifically carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. So how does that, you know, how does that actually work? So what defines it as a zero-carbon property? Basically, it... it produces more energy that it consumes so 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 it, it it's it, it's kind of very fruitful in the amount of energy that this house um gives off so if you look at it kind of in or in a organic manner it's it's kind of it's constantly breathing oxygen back in instead of carbon dioxide instead of emitting carbon dioxide in that sense and how's that done by just doing the maths 
um, and being very conscious of the type of materials you choose, the 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 making it as energy efficient as possible, and just just trying to be aware of of your your actions. What is is like sitting down and really thinking about if I do this, what happens in a year from now, or what happens fifty years from now, and. Uh, it's relatively easy to do. It's just a question of, of, um, of, of. Um, I think connecting back to nature. I would put it that way. Is we've we've spent enough time trying to conquer her, and it's just the other way. And also just and using to our advantage all these great technologies that we have. I'm not. Uh, I'm not saying let's not embrace technology i think it should be embraced for the good of the planet and for the good of mankind and for good of all the creatures that live on this earth is is use that our intelligence to a uh, a mutual benefit for for all parties mm. no I, you know couldn't agree more i think there's only one way to have a happy life and that is to be in tune with you know and in harmony with your surroundings that's definitely how it feels sitting right here under this fig tree so well done you thank you very much <laughs> and thank you so much for joining us here under the fig tree in your fabulous home at Kantanka. it's been a real pleasure thank you for inviting me Thanks again to everybody also for listening to episode two of Amar Latiera. It really helps us to get found um, by leaving us a review and rating us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. If you loved today's episode and found some interesting points in it, and felt like sharing it on social media with friends or sending it to somebody who you might think finds it interesting. That would be really, really incredible. We'll see you next month in August with our first live podcast recorded episode on the subject of to till or not to till the rich red soil of the Balearics. See you next month. <laughs>